The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. As your outline says, Tyre, along with its twin city Sidon, was long associated with idolatry and greed. So Tyre and Sidon were long associated with idolatry and greed. So what we're dealing with here is, this is Galilee, and this is all Israel, and uh, this is... um, Today, the modern-day border with Lebanon and Syria. So this is modern-day Lebanon, Syria over here. And uh, up here, I should do it even farther. Anyway, up here, and it extends, it was Phoenicia, okay? And uh, all of this, all of this was Syria, okay? But there's a strip of land, and on that strip of land was Tyre, and about 20 miles north of Tyre was Sidon, okay? Two twin cities, uh, Josephus refers to uh, Tyre as one of Israel's most bitterest enemies. Okay? Tyre and Sidon was Jezebel's hometown. Her parents, I think her dad, I think, was the king of Tyre and Sidon. So up here, this area was hostile, always hostile, always coming down and raiding Galilee. And uh, so they, they were at war, had been at war for centuries. Okay? Matthew calls this woman a Canaanite. So he's using the Old Testament geographical term that was even more loaded, okay? So Tyre and Sidon, Jesus heads from Jewish territory up into hostile Gentile territory, territory that in the Old Testament was anti-Israel. These, they, this is the Hatfields and the McCoys. The, these people have been fighting for centuries. Very hostile. Again, Tyre and Sidon, that's idolatry, that's greed, that's Jezebel territory in the Jewish mind. And that's where Jesus goes. And apparently Jesus' fame was spread even into this region. We saw in verse 25 and 26 that, uh, let me read it. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. It's called Syrian Phoenicia because it was Phoenicia, but it had been taken over by the Syrians. So they, some of them called it Syria, Phoenicia, okay? And that's what uh, Mark is alluding to here. All right, verse 20. So what, what the, Jew, the Jewish readers, when they're reading this, they'd be thinking, who is this woman? Like, how dare she? This Gentile woman from Tyre, no less, has a lot of nerve approaching a Jewish man from Galilee and asking for a favor, so you need to understand the first century mind reading this, particularly a Jewish mind who's reading it, is thinking, oh my, oh, the nerve of this person. How dare she do this? Which builds the tension for what's about to happen next. Read verse 27 again. Uh, so the, the woman, verse 20, I'll pick it up, verse 26. The woman was a Greek, born in Syria and Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Jesus', Jesus response, look at this. First, let the children eat all they want, for it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. What? Can you imagine me saying that? Someone comes and they're not a member of Broadway and they say, Pastor Darren, would you come and pray for our child? First, let me minister to the people of Broadway. And then the dogs outside of Broadway I'll deal with. Seriously. I'd say that if you went to say Willingdon, but other churches... (laughs) I wouldn't. 
As your outline says, number three, Jesus responds to her request with a semi-insulting riddle. Jesus responds to her request with a semi-insulting riddle. So it's, it's almost insulting, this, what he's saying to her. So to, to decode it, so to speak, uh, 3a, children referred to Israel. Children referred to Israel. This was a common term used. I've given you some examples there on your outline, I believe. Uh, Exodus 4 and Deuteronomy 14 and 32, where you know, Israel is referred to as, as God's children at times. So children referred to Israel clearly. B, dogs was a common and insulting term Jews had for Gentiles. Gentiles meaning non-Jews. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. You're a pagan dog, okay, in their mind. That's what they were called, dogs. Now, to me, to be called a dog nowadays, I, I kind of like dogs. We've got two of them. Um, I've had dogs all my life. But Jews didn't consider dogs as lovable pets, but as wild, feral animals, as, as scavengers. Now, some people try to soften Jesus' words here because they're thinking, well, what's going on? Some try to soften his words by claiming that Jesus uses a milder term for dogs than the common term in, in uh, the original language. They claim he used a term for little puppies. Okay, so, you know, so you put it in those terms, Jesus is actually saying, uh, first let the children eat all they want, for it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the puppies. Okay, that's a little cute now. Okay, you're a little puppy. You know, that's what some would say. Or some others would say that his tone was gentle. And we'll touch on that in a moment. Another thing that's happening here, let her see, Jesus is affirming the Israel first aspect of his ministry. And that can't be denied. Jesus did have an Israel first aspect to his ministry. Um, let's go back to Matthew chapter 10. I'm reading from Matthew chapter 10. You can turn left in Mark from Mark if you'd like. Matthew 10, verse 5 and 6. Matthew records uh, Jesus sending out the 12, the 12. He chooses the 12 apostles and he sends them out. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions, as Matthew quotes. Jesus said, don't go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim the message. And we won't get into that. So Jesus there gave them. He said, I'm sending you now, the 12. When I'm sending you out on your journey, I'm not sending you to Gentile territory. Now, Jesus could go if he wants to, but he's saying to them when they sent them out, don't go into Gentile territory, don't go into Samaria, this area, which was a sort of half Gentile, half Jews in, in the mind of the Jewish people. These were sort of a half-breeds in the Jewish mind back in the first century. Jesus said, don't go into that region. Just go into the, the, the Jewish territory, okay? He, the Messiah came to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles is what uh, Jesus was affirming here. Let's read verse 28 back in Mark chapter 7. Mark 7, 28. So the woman replies, Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. As your outline says, instead of walking away insulted, the woman flows with the metaphor and turns it to her advantage. So instead of walking away insulted, the woman says, yeah, okay, I'll flow with this. She flows with the metaphor and turns to her advantage. Now, her response is respectful, and it's incredibly clever. She accepts the term instead of being offended by it, and she flows with it and applies it to her situation. So what's she saying? Okay, as I said, and I actually mentioned this in my sermon this morning, it's, it's 
the Latham dog day, apparently. It's our theme. Um, we, we have two dogs, and our dogs, we, we have two because we had this little Maltese Bichon dog, Polar, we've had for 14 years now, I think. And Polar, a couple years ago, about four or five years ago, we were convinced he was dying. Uh, in fact, we had to head back east on a trip driving across. And when we left, we left with uh, our son Matthew stayed behind. And Polar literally could not move his back legs. So literally, he was at the point, he was just dragging himself along with his front legs. And it was like, we took him to the vet and the vet said, well, it's hard to say he, it could get better or this could be the end. We're not sure. So we had to put him in a cage and just not let him move around for a few weeks while we were back east. And we fully expected that we were going to have to either put him to sleep or he would die while we were gone back east. Um, and uh, so in the meantime, uh, our old, one of our sons, Matthew, said, Dad, I've, you know, can we get a border collie again? We had a border collie years before, and he wanted another one instead of this cute little fluffy dog that's not very masculine to take for walks. And, and so we thought, okay, you know, let's help our kids along. We'll, you know, we'll get another puppy. So we got a border collie puppy while we were waiting for Polar to die. And Polar said, oh, you think I'm going to die? Well, watch this. <laughs> and Polar came back to life. And to this day, he's 14 years old, he's hopping on couches, and he's fine. It's like, bring it on, you know? So that's why we have two dogs. <laughs> and so we have two dogs, and at mealtime, they, they've been told not to beg. And so but the, what they do is they just sit and they stare. <laughs> and we'll say, Kobe, Polar, no begging. And they put their head down, they'll sit down, and they'll stare. And they look up, and they watch what you're doing. And they're waiting for anything to fall off the table. They're waiting for you to toss something. And you can tell who tosses because that's who they sit by. <laughs> right? And they sit by me, truth be told. So, so they, they, they know what to do. And this is what this woman's talking about. Okay? Go back and look at these words. Um, First, let the children eat all they want, for it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. She said, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She's saying, I'm not trying to steal anything. By the way, see, let me throw this at you as well. Pardon the pun. But uh, once we cooked, barbecued these steaks, and we had a whole bunch of these steaks because we had people over, and we put them on the island in our kitchen on these steaks. And somebody was at the door or whatever, came to the door or was leaving. And so we all went to the front hall and we said goodbye to this person. I come back and like the steaks are gone. <laughs> like three of them at least. And our border collie's going, <laughs> he's just there and, you know, a little barbecue sauce on his cheeks. <laughs> the guy hopped up on the counter and stole three steaks and just scarfed them down in that time. She's saying, I'm not trying to steal anything off a family member's plate. I'm waiting patiently for something to fall to the floor. That's what she's saying here. And as your outline says, um, 4A, notice that, Unlike the disciples, she immediately understands Jesus' metaphor. She gets it right away. She immediately understands it. Remember, these are the disciples who are just thick-skulled, it seems. What do you mean by that? You know, Jesus' parables that seem obvious, and the disciples just, what did you mean by that? You know, seeds and sowers and, and the bread. What do you mean by bread? And this woman, a Gentile woman, understands his metaphor right away. Ah, oh, children, dogs, bread. Yeah, she, she connected the dots immediately. They're stumbling and bubbling and bumbling and not understanding his metaphors all the time. And this Gentile woman immediately understands what Jesus is saying. Verse 29 and 30. So then he told her, 
For such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. As your outline says, number five, impressed by her answer, Jesus grants her request. Impressed by her answer, Jesus grants her request. In 5a, this is the only healing from a distance in Mark's gospel. This is the only healing from a distance in Mark's gospel, meaning it's the only time Jesus healed someone by, without being physically present at the healing. He said, you go home. When you get there, you'll find that she's healed. That's the only time it happens in Mark's gospel. Okay, so what's going on here when you get right down to it? What's happening? Jesus looks rude here. What's going on? A couple things. Number one, uh, in that box, Jesus is either taken off guard by her response and grants her request. That's one option. Jesus is taken off guard by her response. Whoa, I didn't see that coming. That, that, that's good. Or number two, Jesus is being intentionally provocative. Jesus being intentionally provocative. He's provoking her on purpose in an effort to draw out a response from her. So these are the two main options. Jesus says this, and she has this incredible response. He says, wow, that, you're, you're sharp. Okay, I'm going to grant your request because of that. Or Jesus knew exactly what he was doing with that question, and he was provoking her. He was setting her up. As your outline says, 2A, likely the second alternative is the correct one. And I'll explain why. Likely the second alternative is the correct one. Go back to the book of Genesis. The very beginning. Um, you know, again, the Bible speaking anthropomorphic here, anthropomorphically, meaning giving to God human qualities. It means speaking about a situation from a human anthro, a human perspective. So it says that Adam and Eve are in the garden, and God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Again, we know scripture teaches God's spirit. God doesn't have a body. So it's speaking poetically here and it's telling us a story. And uh, so it says God's walking in the garden. Adam and Eve have sinned. They've done what they were told not to do and they're hiding. And the Bible says God's walking in the garden and they're hiding and God asks, where are you? Okay, I thought God knows everything. He does. It's not as though he's looking, they're hiding behind a tree and he doesn't see them. Again, he's all, he's all knowing. He, so when he asks, where are you? He's not asking because he does not know. He's asking for a reason. And he says, who, who told you you were naked? It's not as though God was off doing something else when the serpent did this. God knows exactly what happened. Uh, did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from? He knows the answer. It would be, be like me coming back and seeing our dog, our border collie there with, with, with steaks missing and barbecue sauce all over his face and me saying, Kobe, did you eat those steaks? In fact, that's exactly what I did. I'm not sure what I was waiting for him to say. They are the smartest dogs in the world, but he didn't say, oh. you know. So I'm asking, when you ask a child that, you know, don't have any cookies and you walk away and they come back and there's cookies missing and they have chocolate all over your face. And you say, did you take one of those cookies I told you not to take? Why are you asking that question? You know the answer, but you're asking because you're trying to draw truth out of them. You're giving them an opportunity to speak the truth, okay? You're trying, it's a teaching moment. And I think, and many scholars think that's what's happening here. Jesus is, is saying this, not, you know, he, he's saying this, he's intentionally putting her in a position. 
where he's drawing truth out of her. That's what he's doing. He's, 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 it's a teaching moment for the disciples as well and for the, uh, the, the apostles, which is why it's being written down here. Because this was a key turning moment. It was a memorable moment when, the, when Jesus was revealing more about his mission and himself at this moment. So he's moving the story forward. And again, tone and gestures communicate much here. Okay? So let me read this two completely different ways with two completely different attitudes. Um, and you'll see the difference, how tone that can't be communicated in, in uh, type would, would communicate. Um, so Jesus goes, I'm starting again from verse uh, 26. The woman was Greek, born in Syria and Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her. Jesus said, first let the children eat all they want. It's not right to take children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Could have said that way. Or he, she asked the question, he said, no, first let's let the children eat. If it's not right to take the, the children's bread and toss it to the dogs, then is it? Okay, two completely different attitudes. And I could be even more coy if I wanted to, okay? So how Jesus said it really sets up a lot. And um, so it, it appears that Jesus is not being harsh and abrupt and taken off guard. It appears he's being intentionally provocative and coy in, in what he's saying here. Number three, what's going on here? Jesus is affirming the priority of Israel in salvation history. So he's affirming the priority of Israel in salvation history. He's not backing off on that. There's a famous poem uh, about, uh, that was written by, uh, I think it was written by a Jewish gentleman um, years ago. It said, how odd of God to choose the Jews. It's a famous little poem. How odd of God to choose the Jews. And um, someone uh, not too long ago wrote a follow-up to that. Now keep in mind the word goyim is the Jewish word for Gentiles. Okay, that's what they, they call us, goyim. So a, a Jewish man wrote this a few years ago. Not odd of God, goyim annoyim. <laughs> so... Jesus is affirming the Israel first policy. Now, we need to remind ourselves of God's role for Israel. Uh, turn right with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, uh, verses 1 and 2. This is the Apostle Paul saying this. He says, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Because he's just taught about how, you know, we're all guilty and we're all sinful. So he says, so what's the point of being a Jew then? Um, or what value is there in circumcision? You know, why do we go through all this painful experience as men if it doesn't, if we're not saved according to those outward things? Uh, Paul answers his own question, much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. So that's the first blank. God's role for Israel, A, was be a keeper of God's word. Israel was entrusted with the role of being a keeper of God's word. We have our Old Testament, we have our New Testament as well because of the Jewish people worked hard with scribes. You know, we, we talk about scribes and Pharisees. Well, scribes were meticulous in copying scripture and, and, and preserving and honoring scripture. I don't have the time to, to go into it, but scribes were incredibly meticulous and that's why we know we can trust uh, God's word and the quality of God's word that we have now. That's why we have found Dead Sea Scrolls from thousands of years ago and 
and compared them with the copies of scripture that, that they got hundreds and hundreds of years later and they were essentially identical. So this old saw that people say about, oh, scripture's been translated so many times, blah, 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 so we don't even know what the original said. Not at all. If anyone says that to you, that's a sign they have no idea what they're talking about. Because the truth is that we do know. We, we, uh, this has been copied. Yes, it's been copied many times. And the more it's copied, the better it is because we can compare copies and we can compare and realize, oh yes, they're all saying the same except for that one and that one. So those are the outliers. And uh, tr- trust me on this. In fact, we taught on this and we displayed this in, the, we, in our, this class a while ago and we did the doctrine of revelation, not the book of revelation, the doctrine of revelation where we taught and explained how we got our Bible. You can watch that online and get the notes as well where we explain this whole process of what the scribes did and how we got scripture and why it's reliable and dependable. And we can thank the, the Jewish people for that because they were keepers of God's word. Romans 9, Paul talks a bit more here. Uh, Romans 9, 4 and 5, similar theme. He says... Um, He says, the people of Israel, theirs is the adoption to sonship. There's the divine glory, the covenant, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. There's the divinity of Jesus, by the way. But uh, so they are be the mediator for the Messiah. The mediator for the Messiah. And by, by mediator, I'm talking about uh, the agency that brings about something. They mediate, they bring about things. Uh, con- they have a connecting role. Mediator comes between, well, this is what the, the Jewish people did. They were the mediator for the Messiah. They were the agency that brought about um, the, the Messiah into, into our world today. The Messiah was brought about in the context of Israel, in the context of Judaism, in the context of the, the patriarchs and, 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 and the sacrificial system. Jesus, the Messiah, made sense in this whole context of Israel. So they had a crucial role. This is why the Messiah came to, the, to, the, to, the, to Israel first. They were the keepers of God's word. They were the ones who were the expecting the Messiah. They were the ones who uh, had the, the family line to bring about the Messiah. And also... Isaiah 42, you can turn way left in the Old Testament. Isaiah 42, verse 6 says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, speaking of Israel. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. Isaiah 49, 6 says, similar theme. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles for my, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. He says, so I'm not just going to have you speaking to the Jews. It's too, that's too small thinking. I'm also going to make you a light to the Gentiles. So letter C, role for Israel was to be a light for the Gentiles, a light for the Gentiles. So they are to be keepers of God's word, mediators for the Messiah, and a light for the Gentiles. So Jesus had this policy of to the Jews first, then the Gentiles. Now, to honor this principle, the Apostle Paul, what he would do in his missionary journeys, he would go to the local synagogue. He'd go into a city, go into Corinth, first place he'd go, the local synagogue. And he would, to, to preach to them, that the Messiah had come to rouse their faith, to call them to fulfill their mandate, mandate to be lights to the world. 
And then if that local synagogue, if those people refused, he would then dust off his feet and he would pay full attention to the Gentiles. Okay? They, they got first shot. Okay? Now, he still would preach to the Gentiles after that as well. So what would happen if, the, if the, a local synagogue accepted? That seemed to happen in Troas. When you read it, the implications, it seemed to happen. Who knows? But uh, so he would then, if that had happened, that would be the, the landing, the, 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 the home base. And then he would show them there would be a light to the Gentiles and they would reach out to the Gentiles as well. I'm sure that's what he would do. That was his ministry to the Gentiles. But to honor the, to the Jew first principle, he would first go to the synagogue, give them first opportunity, first right of refusal, if you can think in those terms. So number five, this woman demonstrates the attributes. What's going on here? This woman demonstrates the attributes that God is looking for in people. First of all, letter A, persistent faith. She demonstrates persistent faith. A faith that's going to survive the presence of obstacles. So her faith didn't wilt. You know, the first time she got a refusal. You know, can you come? And she didn't get a, yes, I'm coming right away. She didn't get that. So did she just wilt and, and get all resentful? No. She pushed back and she pushed through, okay? She didn't require Jesus to follow her home, right? She took his word at face value. Think about that. He said, no, go, your daughter's healed. She didn't say, oh, what? No, you gotta come. You come and do it and do some hocus pocus thing and lay hands on her or something. I've heard that's what you do. No, she didn't. She trusted him, okay? B, another thing that God's looking for that she displayed was humility, humility, she acknowledges her undeserving position. So in great humility, she didn't say, how dare you say that to me? She didn't say that. She recognized and accepted Israel's priority. She didn't push back. How dare you say, what, what's so great about the Jewish people? She didn't do any of that. She accepted Israel's priority and she acknowledged she's undeserving and she pleads for mercy. Great humility here that's modeled for us. It was D.L. Moody who said, Jesus sent no one away empty-handed except those who were full of themselves. And that wasn't her. She had persistent faith. She had humility. Let her see. She demonstrated spiritual discernment. Spiritual discernment. She is the first to recognize that salvation is open to everyone who has faith. You see that? She's the first one to recognize that salvation is open to everyone who has faith. She's the first to recognize that Jew first does not mean no Gentiles. There's a difference between Jews first and no Gentiles. That's not the same thing. And she recognizes this. So, when we sum all this up, Jesus is bested by the least likely person for a first century reader. Not by a rabbi, not by a, a Pharisee, not by a politician, but by a Gentile and a Gentile woman on top of all that. And Jesus leads her into that and, and allows this uh, to happen. He's making a point here on so many levels. Now remember the wider context that had just happened. The Pharisee had just rebuked Jesus for eating with unclean hands. Pharisees saw even Jesus' disciples as being unworthy to sit at their table. Jesus is showing that there are plenty of people waiting around the table to receive what the Pharisees are so willing to, th to toss aside. And Jesus is not only pronouncing all foods clean, but all nations clean as well. 
A lot happening here. As Mark's, again, remember, the gospel writers could position things as they want. Didn't necessarily have to be chronological, but he's placing this right after that for a reason. He's making a statement here. And then, uh, verses 31 to 37, there's a change of scenery, but they're still in Gentile territory. 731. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon uh, and went through Sidon. So he goes north first and, uh, and then down to the Sea of Galilee and then into the region of the, of the Decapolis, Galilee and then into the region of the Decapolis, which is uh, sort of this region here, more of this region. Okay. The Decapolis, remember, was the 10 cities uh, sort of scattered throughout this region, and they were Gentile cities. And they had this sort of a, a covenant, a, a trade covenant, and a, a protecting one another. Almost like, think of NATO and, and the NAFTA combined. <laughs> think in those terms. Ooh, that's scary. But uh, think of NATO and NAFTA combined, and, and that's sort of uh, what's going on there. Uh, then let's keep reading verse 32. Uh, there some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. So Mark presents the situation that's being brought before Jesus. Then verse 33 and 34. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. Ooh. Okay. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha which means be opened. So as your outline says, Mark shares Jesus' response with a vividness that only an eyewitness could have. So he shares this response with a vividness that only an eyewitness could have. 3A, using spit is odd to us, but was not unusual in first century healing scenarios. So it's weird to us, but first century healing scenarios, it's not unusual. It's used here. Uh, Mark 8.23, it's used again. John 9.6, there's a reference there. Spit from an important person in the first century was considered powerful. Some rabbis saw this as magic and rejected it, while others accepted it as having medicinal value. So why did Jesus do this? Well, we don't know for sure. People have surmised over the years. Uh, letter B Jesus' unusual method may have been his way of communicating his intentions to a man who couldn't hear. So it could have been a way of symbolically, visually communicating his intentions to a man who couldn't hear. Who knows? Ephatha is believed to be an Aramaic word, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, I don't know that I am, uh, is believed to be an Aramaic word. This is not unusual since you say, what's Aramaic doing being spoken in Gentile territory? Aramaic was a Jewish language. It was... It's known to have been spoken in that area along with Greek as well. So this is not unusual at all. Letter C, Mark's description shows that it was more Jesus' words than his actions that brought about the result. So Mark's description shows that it was more Jesus' words than his actions. So it's not as though the spit had some magical you know, power. It's more his words how do we know this? Well, let me put it to you this way. My doctor doesn't need to say anything for the medicine or surgery to work. So when I go to my doctor and she gives me, she gives me medicine, I don't, she doesn't need to say anything. She could just hand me the medicine and it works. So it, it's, it's, it, it's more Jesus' words than his actions that are bringing about the results. It's his declaration, his, his authority that's taking place here. Um, 
Let me read Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. Again, to get the Old Testament context of what's happening. The prophet Isaiah wrote this. Then will the eyes of the blind be open, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. With that in mind, again, you go back to uh, Mark, today's passage, Mark 7, verse 35. It says, at this the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak plainly. So as your outline says, in restoring this man's hearing and voice, Jesus does what, again, only God can do. What scripture teaches God will do and what only God can do, Jesus does on his own authority. He doesn't, again, doesn't cry out, ask for the Father to do this. Jesus says, authoritatively, you know, be open. He does it on his own authority. He does it, again, what only God can do. Verses 36 and 37 Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So again, as your outline says, clearly Jesus' popularity is growing. His popularity is growing. Now we are fast approaching the tipping point in Jesus' ministry. Remember we said act one, the theme for Act 1 is, who is this man? And Act 2, because the answer to Act 1 we're going to see in a, in a couple of weeks, where Peter finally says, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah. That answers the question, who is this man? He's the Messiah. That's what the first seven, eight chapters of Mark bring us to. Who is this man? Who is this man? All these authoritative declarations and miraculous things. Who are you? Who are you? Finally, Peter gets it. You're the Messiah. And Jesus says, you're right. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to you. But my, 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 the spirit of God has revealed that to you. And then act two, as they're then traveling from Galilee down to Jerusalem for Jesus' last week of his life, on this journey back, Mark takes us to Act 2, which is not Goyim, but Act 2, which is, so who is the Messiah? The Messiah isn't who you think he is. I'm the Messiah. That's who I am. Oh, so you're going to come and crush those dirty Romans? No, actually, the Messiah is going to suffer and die and rise again. What? That's what Act 2 is all about. Jesus unpacks who the Messiah is. And then Act 3 is Jesus' last week in Jerusalem and all the tragedy and passion that happens there is Act 3 of Mark's drama. But, so we're just at the end, coming up to the end of Act 1, and we're about to go into the tipping point of Act 2. Any questions about what we've learned today? So if I understand the question, John, to rephrase it, you're saying, you know, how can we always discern what's really happening in situations? There's lots of different options of what could have been happening here. How do we know what the right one is? Um, uh, that, that's, that's kind of the, the, the task of what's called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics, which is the, the science of uh, uh, d discerning and, and interpreting scripture in the proper way. Um, there's something called exegesis, not Jesus, but Jesus, exegesis, and then eisegesis, it's an I or an E. Um, exegesis is taking out 
exegeting, taking out of this passage what God put into it. Eisegesis is putting into it the meaning you want it to have. And so the question you're asking is a very scholarly question. You're saying, you know, um, how do we discern what's really happening in a passage? Because we can go in all sorts of different directions. That's the science of hermeneutics, and you seek to be a good exegete and not an eisegete, where you take out of it what God is putting into it. And the way you do that is you understand the context of the passage itself. You, you do your best to study the historical context. Um, so what's happening in first century Palestine at that time, so you can exegete, pull out of it the context. So the people who heard that at that moment understood this about the world and that about Israel and that about Gentiles, and here's what they were thinking, and suddenly it begins to make more sense. You know, uh, For me to say, you know, you know, when it comes to hockey, I'm no Sidney Crosby or Wayne Gretzky. Okay, right now, in this context, you know, well, Sidney Crosby and Wayne Gretzky, those are two great Canadian hockey players. 2,000 years from now, who is Sidney Crosby and Wayne Gretzky? That would be the job of an exegete 2,000 years from now to say, well, in that culture 2,000 years ago, they played a game called hockey, which we can no longer play anymore because of global warming and all the ice is melted. <laughs> but back then, they had something called cold. You know, and so anyway... So they would have to exegete that. And uh, so to answer your question, that's the skill of, you can't just read the Bible and put on these meanings. What we need to do as Bible students is study it and do our best to understand the context, um, historically and also theologically. And what does the rest of scripture say? Um, it's, it's a, that's a, our task. Other questions? Yes. Ooh, the role of Israel has been taken out over by the church, or are we walking hand in hand? Well, we really don't have time to answer that question. <laughs> uh, therein is a debate. Um, I, I, I don't think, I don't see the church as the new Israel. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking on my toes here right now because there's, this is such a nuanced response. The Apostle Paul clearly uh, did not see that God was done with Israel. Because in the book of Romans, he says, you know, he's, there's still a role for Israel. Um, so, but having said that, um, there's just, God has one people now. It's not as though he has Israel and he has the church. No, he ha each has a unique role in, in, at one level. But now, we are one. We're all under one banner now. And so there's one God, one church, one body. The Bible doesn't say there's two bodies. There's Israel and there's the church. No, there's one body, one baptism, one spirit. So we are all one. So to be a follower of Jesus, uh, you can still be uh, culturally, racially, uh, ethnically Jewish and be a follower of Jesus. So you're a follower of Jesus. You're in the church of Jesus Christ and it's made up of Jews and Gentiles. The Greeks, the Jews, you know, there's neither male nor female, Jew nor, you know, slave nor free, Greek nor... Uh, Gentile nor Jew. So we are all one in Christ. So we are all one body, one Christ. But I believe God still has a role and still has a, a calling upon uh, national Israel. Um, so that's, that's the, the tension we have to manage when it comes to that. So um, have we replaced Israel? I don't even really know what that means. It all depends on what someone's asking what they mean by that. Uh, I would say we have not Israel is not to be cast aside. I think there's, God still has a role and still turns back to them and has a, has a heart for the people of Israel. And certainly Paul did. And he says, you know, I pray for them and that they will come back.
So God's not forgotten them, um, but no longer do you access God through the sacrifices, through the, the holidays and the seasons and the feasts and all that stuff, the Sabbaths. No, that's not, not how you access God anymore. Paul makes that very clear in Romans as well, in Galatians. Other questions? Thank you, folks. Next week is Communion Sunday, and then we'll pick it up again the first Sunday in February. God bless you. Thank you for being here.